recording is started. Now let's go to Facebook. Technology, right? It baffles me. Right? Me too. <laughs> I feel like my grandparents when I was little, I can't figure it out. And this takes a minute, so I apologize for that. Our other platform, we, we went live within seconds, but this one's much slower. Okay. Almost there. Come on. Okay. And it'll go on to the page too. And somebody is monitoring comments already. So that is an awesome oh, nice. thing. All right, here we go. We are going live. And we're live. We are live. We're up. Cool. <laughs> Welcome everybody back to Dyslexia Coffee Talk. We have the most exciting guest ever in the history of our show with Dr. Louisa Motes. I've, Enid and I have, in our conversations the last week, we keep calling you the godmother of structured literacy because <laughs> your research is so profound. Um, so my name is Ashley and my co-host Enid, and thank you so much for being here today with us, Dr. Motes. It's fun to join you. Thanks. <laughs> We'd like to start with, I'm oh, sorry, Ashley, do you? No, I was gonna say, Ina, did you wanna start? <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> um, we'd like to start with um, talking to you about your involvement with uh, um, Reading First and how that led to Now Letters, which is a wonderful program in the schools. Mm -hmm. Okay, sure. Um, well, a lot of you who are on this probably don't even know what Reading First was um, because it's now the end of 2020. But Reading First was a large um, uh, federally funded initiative that flowed to the states that was part of the No Child Left Behind Act that um, George W. Bush put before Congress and got funding for in 2001. And at the time <clears throat> I was finishing up a project in Washington DC in the high poverty schools, um, working with Barbara Foreman and actually it was funded through the University of Texas at Houston. Uh, so she had connections uh, with uh, President Bush and, and of course, Laura Bush who's always been, and, and Barbara Bush, who are very interested in promoting literacy. So <clears throat> at the end of this project, I was in a pretty visible position in Washington uh, <clears throat> when No Child Left Behind was put in front of Congress. Um, but I had been working actually for 15 years before that, at least 15, maybe 20 years before that, developing courses for teachers. And I had written some articles uh, for the American Federation of Teachers. And the one that got the most notice was Teaching Reading is Rocket Science. And that was published in 1999, along with um, the AFT's special issues about reading. So the upshot of this was that um, I was asked to outline the professional development criteria for states who are going to be funded under Reading First, the Reading First initiative, uh, and the funding rolled out in 2002. Um, my work in professional development was pretty well known at that point uh, in the research community, but at that point we realized we had national interest through these state grants under the Reading First initiative. 
And at that point, I began to develop what has become letters, professional development. Uh, but, you know, everyone should know that this has been a 40-year enterprise in my professional life, uh, still ongoing, perhaps on a larger scale now. Um, and the reason for my devotion to this issue is that there's no way <laughs> to get a result in reading instruction unless the teacher knows a lot and has <laughs> been mentored and coached uh, to develop the expertise to deliver instruction. Um, and that's true even if the teacher has been given a well-designed instructional material. So uh, letters is not, a, is not a reading program. Letters stands for language essentials for teachers of reading and spelling. And it's all about the background knowledge of language, of reading development and that basic psychology of how we learn to read. Um, it's all about the knowledge base that is the underpinning for being a successful professional. Thank you so much. And it is a brilliant, um, I'm not, I don't want to call it a program. It is a brilliant, um, it's a program, but it's a brilliant contribution. And I, I, I really encourage, I see all the time people online saying, you know, are schools willing to invest in something? What program do we use? And like you said, it's so much more, it's, it's professional development. And I feel like that's so important from working in the schools and seeing the need for that because not everybody gets that background in college in the language development and structured literacy. Mm -hmm. Ashley, I, would say, oh, well, I would qualify that and say, very few or minority of teachers in training still at this point mm -hmm. are not getting the background knowledge necessary. Mm -hmm. And that's why so much effort has to go into professional development after teachers are already you know, licensed. Well, there's plenty of data to support what I'm saying from the National Council on Teacher Quality and then from other studies um, that, that show that teachers more often than not are going through programs that are not giving them the information they need. And I wanted to just add that it's very teacher friendly for the teachers people out there, I know that working in the schools, it's always, you know, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater and get a new something. And, and sometimes there's resistance to new things coming in, but this is one of those things where every single teacher I've ever spoken to, it's very well received. It's very easy to, um, to implement into the schools. It's not something that's, that's, that's difficult. You've made it very, very easy for schools to implement letters and for it to be very, very beneficial. Yeah, well, thanks. And it's, it's a matter of people wanting to know and spending the time studying. But I think the course, the way it is now, reflects, you know, again, 40 years of experience, not only mine, but my wonderful colleagues who've worked on this with me. We know how to teach the concepts. Um, we, we, we know how to bring people along if they're willing to study and practice and apply and ask questions and all, all of that, yeah. So I think that that leads in really well to a question that I had for you, which was, um, I'm gonna try to get this out of my, I, I said it to Ina two days ago. <laughs> I'm not gonna try to get it out of my head correctly. But say you have a school district that is 100% entrenched in balanced literacy. And they are invested in making the change and, you know, changing their literacy numbers and actually truly helping their dyslexic children. But they don't know where to begin. You know, this is, this is a complete 180 degree turn from what they've always known into a completely new arena, if you will. How would you advise a district like that where would you tell them to begin? How would you tell them, you know, what process to follow in order to ensure that they don't fall back into balanced literacy as well, so that they are as, as successful as they can possibly be in this 
I would call it a massive undertaking really, because I mean, that's, that's such a massive shift from what they know to a different realm, really. Ashley, that's a, that's a profound remark on your part. Um, of course, we encounter this situation all the time. Right. And uh, uh, what not to do is to believe that patchwork and a few supplements uh, combined with balanced literacy, you know, some add-ons are going to be what you want. You have to face the fact <laughs> that balanced literacy and related things need to go. They just need to go um, because they're based on, first of all, a real lack of understanding of what's involved in learning to read for all those kids, the two thirds who don't just pick it up from mm -hmm. incidental exposure. Mm -hmm. um, secondly, uh, the entire structure, not, not only of the way the lessons are designed and what teachers are told to do, but also the reliance on leveled books and the absence of systematic code-based instruction. It's not something you can do with patchwork. So that being said, that means that there has to be a, a real shift of mindset and practice and that can't be done overnight. It really cannot be done overnight because teachers, um, there's a fabulous teacher in named Margaret Goldberg in the Oakland School District in California who has just done uh, for Reading Rockets, uh, the website Reading Rockets and for the, the Reading League Journal, it's just done a wonderful kind of blog and, 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 and kind of memoir, if you will, about her own personal shift that she underwent. First, she was trained in all the balanced literacy stuff, realized her kids weren't learning to read, by accident got sort of exposed to letters and, and better information all the way along, shifted how she taught, realized, you know, the difference, profound difference in these approaches, and talks a lot about um, that the teacher she was and the fact that teachers are persuaded in the balanced literacy world that, um, that these approaches are more creative, they're more about student choice, they're more about authenticity, they're more about comprehension, they're more about uh, teacher autonomy, uh, they're more about um, teachers being able to do what they want. Uh, but at the same time, as she points out, they're really about the teacher not owning whether the student is making progress or not. Because if it's, you know, not really under, not, she isn't really in control and isn't measuring and isn't progress monitoring and it doesn't have specific goals in a sequence of skill development, um, then, you know, there's this kind of freedom that comes from, well, if the kid doesn't learn, well, I, you know, I gave them those wonderful books and, and we memorized books A through F, whatever goes on, uh, and they didn't get it, it's not me. Um, so, uh, you know, one of the, so, okay, back to the beginning. So what I would do is tell a faculty from the outset, look, you, you don't need to change anything right now, but the first thing we're going to do <clears throat> is study the science of reading. And we're going to do it as an academic exercise. We are, we are going to read we are going to learn information about the psychology of reading. Uh, we are going to look at and understand uh, the, the differences in the instructional approaches. We're going to look at the research, the, the, the real research that is published in peer reviewed uh, 
and, and consensus documents. And we're not gonna do anything until we have a sense of what we need to do. Then the second thing I would do is spend about a year studying phonology and what phonology is. And that's what I did in, in Washington when I had these very burned out, very depressed teachers in these low performing schools in Washington who had pretty much decided that the kids were never going to achieve anything. And that was the mindset and the culture. Um, we spent a year learning what it meant to teach phoneme awareness because, now why would you need a year for phoneme awareness? Because it is paradoxically, it seems to be the most simple thing. And in fact, it's the most difficult for teachers to grasp and to really get their heads around. Um, and it takes a lot of practice and it takes a lot of, um, it takes a lot of practice to learn the content. Then it takes practice to learn how to conduct the little exercises with kids. So that isn't done overnight. <clears throat> and, and that's why, if teachers are busy and they're working hard, you know, they only have so much time and then you get them to start working on this and they start having ahas. And then the next thing you need to do, and this is if you have all the time in the world, spend the next year teaching the teachers what phoneme awareness has to do with learning the code. And then the next year is all about phonics and spelling and how the writing system represents the speech, the, the oral language, the speech sound system and the structures of language, because that too is basically unknown. And um, teachers have a lot to learn typically, um, a lot to learn. And unfortunately in the balanced literacy era, um, <clears throat> the minimization of the, just the information about language structure that, that kids need to learn and that teachers need to teach. It's, it's appalling. Um, what's still going on is appalling to me, the lack of explicit instruction about how the code works. Um, and of course, as you all know, uh, this is devastating for kids with dyslexia. Um, they're, you know, never taught yeah. how it works. But that's because mostly the teachers don't know how it works. And so, of course, they need to be empowered. And when they are empowered with this knowledge base, and they can explain what's going on and structure a lesson so that kids actually learn step-by-step step how to read the code and, and write words, uh, they, they never go back. <laughs> I think you said something very profound. I mean, everything that you just said was monumentally profound and the comments are definitely reflecting that. But you, you said something that I think a lot of people don't necessarily realize. I think when parents are challenging districts to switch from balanced literacy to structured literacy, they think that, I mean, there's a lot of programs out there, right? That have trainings that they may progress over multiple years, but you know, there's, there's so many days of training and then you can go teach this training that you've been given, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I think that people kind of get hung up on the idea that it's, it's not necessarily flipping a light switch between balanced literacy and structured literacy, you know, that you just make your, make your mind up one day that you're not gonna do this anymore, that you're going to do this instead. But what you just explained was that really, and correct me if I heard you wrong, it's more of a multi-year transition because there's so much that has to be learned and implemented into what is taught to not just the teachers, but through the teachers once they understand to the students themselves. Did right. I hear you correctly? It's, it's a three to five year plan. 
Oh, wow. Um, three years minimum to make this transition because then the administrators in the hot seat because the administrators have spent a lot of money right. uh, on you know, materials and consultants. Uh, you know, in California, they fly them in from New York for God's sake. Um, it's and 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 believe that they're you know buying into something uh, that that's uh, you know good practice, and in fact, it's it's just horrible. Um, I mean, I don't miss my words anymore because I've seen up close for so long the damage to kids who could otherwise have succeeded much earlier and much more readily. So, um, uh, uh, making the shift requires leadership. And, you know, then people ask, well, where has this actually occurred? And we can cite districts uh, typically that have stable leadership and you know, preferentially, they are in states with stable leadership where a consistent message has come down from the legislature, the state superintendent of education, the um, you know, county offices and everything else about what's going to work best and how to get there. And right now, um, you know, we've all seen the success in Mississippi because that's the case. Colorado is taking a very firm hand in what's going on, good for them. Arkansas has taken a very firm hand. I mean, they have a list, do this, don't do this. These are, you know, these are reasonably decent approaches. These are not, you know, we're not gonna give you money to do the bad stuff. So, I mean, I, I'm using pejorative language here, but um, it, and I, I'm sorry, I'm just uh, too old to miss my words. Um, you don't, I'm sorry, I was going to say, you, right. you don't have to apologize. Oh. I my, just you found know, this this morning. It, you know, so I'm impatient sorry. when we have so much evidence mm -hmm. uh, for, you know, understanding what's going on and at least teaching the basic components. Now, um, let's see. So it takes consistent leadership and, uh, and in Pennsylvania, for example, through their state uh, professional development organization, they have been very consistent. The leadership is terrific, but I'm not sure that that's in Pennsylvania imbued at all levels the way it needs to be. Certainly, um, yeah you know, in part of the state, they're really nailing, you know, good practices. But in, in other states, if, if the leadership allows for the um, disproven but popular ideas to take root and, and sustain themselves through funding, um, then change is almost impossible on the scale that you want, on the scale that really would elevate the overall performance of the, of the kids. Yeah. Well, and I was talking to an advocate recently in Arkansas specifically about the changes that they made at the legislative level mm -hmm. and how they were able to push that through. And being in Texas, you know, it, it's a completely different game in this state, just like it would be for California. It's, there are such large states with such large cities and such massive populations. I think the state of Arkansas has a population roughly equivalent to, you know, two of our cities here in Texas. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's just a portion of the overall state population. Mm -hmm. Um, so we were comparing kind of the different challenges across the state and she felt like that it was an easier fight in Arkansas because it was such a smaller population base 
really, you know, one massive city. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, Fayetteville is a pretty big city, but I'm specifically referring to Little Rock, you know, as their as their biggest city versus a state like Texas, where you've got Houston and Dallas and Fort Worth and Austin. And, you know, then you've got California with LA and San Diego and Sacramento and San Francisco. I mean, you're talking about massive population states. And so I, the perspective is that it's a, it's a higher mountain decline because there's more people that you have to convince. There's more funding that you have to tackle. There's more that you have to sort of dismantle in order to ultimately get to that goal. Yeah, it's tough. And then the the opposition who inevitably are the people who stand to lose money because you know they've sold a gazillion dollars worth of leveled books and on and on. Right. Um, uh, they're going to fight tooth and nail to retain their market share. Right. One thing I think people need to, we need to really spread loud and clear is that every board meeting for every school district has three minutes at the beginning of every board meeting that any single person can speak about anything. So if, and I don't know that people realize that they can go to any board meeting and now with the Zoom, with the times we have now with Zoom, it makes it much easier to attend board meetings. So I highly encourage, I mean, how do we change things like in a state like California, which I'm in? And I, you know, we have a governor who's dyslexic with dyslexic children and, you know, so you would think that we would be maybe a little bit, you know, and we've even had progress with reading first in California. So you would think we would be further ahead. However, um, we aren't um, because people aren't making their voices heard. Uh, It takes people saying, this isn't, I'm sure that's what happened in, Arkansas and other places, this isn't okay anymore. We're not putting up with this. And so I think that once that starts to happen, I think then things will start to to change. But there are two lawsuits right now in the state of California um, where the state of California is being sued for violating children's civil rights. So they're both in action right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So things Uh, like that will help change. mm -hmm. It will help. And then, you know, I was in California from 1990 six to seven. And I was the resident expert in reading uh, in the Sacramento County Office of Ed. And they got, we got a million dollars from the state to roll out professional development across the state. That was my job. And um, I learned then uh, about state politics and county offices and entrenched interests and uh, the difficulty of influencing what went on in teacher training in the universities um, and the roles that various organizations played in maintaining the status quo. And the status quo was all about, you know, a good teacher invents it as she goes along. She's, she's basically an artist. She's not a, you know, and, and, uh, and the other thing was kids learn to read by reading. I mean, if there was ever a more inane statement, kids learn to read by reading. You know, Which causes so much frustration. I, 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 didn't, I didn't learn how to ski by skiing. <laughs> you know, I didn't, I didn't learn how to play the piano by playing the piano. I learned by gradual development of component skills and then having an opportunity to apply those Mm -hmm. and why people are so blind to this is something that's puzzling to me uh and and i think it has to do with number one uh the range of individual differences that our kids represent Mm -hmm. we do have a small portion who come to school already reading they've just figured it out by looking at the words, you know, and just putting two and two together. Mm-hmm. And, and so because a third of the kids learn no matter how you teach them, basically, mm-hmm. uh, that perpetuates the justification for doing things that are far less effective than they could be for the other two thirds, and especially the bottom third, which is so dependent 
on how they're being taught. Uh, so that's, you know, that's one issue because I, I think about this a lot. You know, what, why is it that the anti-code, uh, you know, anti-dyslexia camp keeps at it? Okay, what is it they don't see? And the other thing is, and I write about this sometimes, the other thing is that the nature of skilled reading is so hidden from view. And when adults can already read, they imagine that the act of learning to read words on the page is this some magical visual imprinting process. All you have to do is just look at the word. There it is. Um, and they have, because their word recognition is automatic and unconscious and instantaneous. They cannot, they cannot see what it might've taken to get to that point. And especially if they never had any problem learning to read. And uh, I was in a conversation yesterday with a wonderful group of colleagues and uh, somebody mentioned a study or maybe it was just a survey they did of the teachers who were in a workshop they were doing and they asked, well, how many of you remember what it took to learn to read? And something like 85% of them couldn't remember and thought it was just this effortless process. So maybe teaching itself as a profession attracts a disproportionate number of people for whom it was relatively easy because if people found it difficult, they're less likely to want to be in front of a group of kids having to explain how words are spelled and so on. Um, so that's part of it. But part of it is just simply lack of education in the psychology of reading acquisition and um, experience having someone explain why that kid misread the word and what's going on and why the spelling looks like the way it does and you know what the path through the word recognition process could be. And the really misguided belief that a child will grow out of that. Oh yeah. That, I mean, you know, and, and, and we, we had, you know, the reason for reading first, this is 20 years ago, right after the national reading panel. And we already had data that Reed Lyon used to talk about, you know, we knew from studies at that point that a kid who was behind in first grade had an 87% chance of being behind for life. You know, we knew that kids didn't grow out of it. We knew from the efforts to develop screening instruments to identify kids in kindergarten who were at risk. We knew from that predictive data, uh, say at the University of Oregon and other, other research institutes, that if kids were showing certain problems with pre-literacy skills in kindergarten, that we, we could measure the, the risk and monitor where those kids were. And it was so clear that they wouldn't grow out of it. It was so clear that this, you know, the late bloomer idea was a total myth. Yeah. I wanted to say we have comments from Pakistan and Canada saying that they're interested in knowing more about letters. So it's interesting, we have people from all over the world asking questions. And one question that came in and I think um, was interesting was what reading curriculum goes along with letters? Okay. And I think earlier you talked about teachers being autonomous and I wanted you to yeah. be able to answer that question. All right, well, the unfortunate rub here in what I'm saying is that I cannot point to uh, very many instructional materials and programs that would meet my personal standard for what should be taught. That, that where the instruction is based on what I think are certain truths about the speech to print relationship. So what we have to settle for is um, 
picking the best ones we have and having a teacher who is smarter than the program, right? Um, the state of Colorado has developed a list of materials that they've reviewed. That's a pretty good list. Um, uh, you know, rather than my naming programs, I would say, okay, what my preference is, if you find this in materials, is that from the beginning, the instruction calls attention to the structure of speech and the identity of the speech sounds that are going to be represented in print. And it defines a consonant and a vowel as a speech sound or a class of speech sounds. And then it teaches this, the graphemes, which are letters and letter combinations that represent those speech sounds. And it does that systematically and cumulatively over time so that kids by the end of kindergarten, if this is done well, are able to spell almost anything with a logical phonetic spelling that is not guesswork. It's based on their knowledge of what letters you use to spell the sounds in the word. And, um, and that all the way through this, phoneme awareness is, is developed as the skill of taking apart the speech sounds in the, in the spoken word and putting them back together again, beginning with two sounds, then going to three, and then getting into consonant blends, which are more difficult. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, I believe in teaching kids all of the speech sounds. Uh, and that means that if a program thinks well, I just see lots of bad examples out there of programs that don't get this basic idea. Yeah. Um, and they, for example, teach kids that letters make sounds and they mm -hmm. think that they've taught the code if they've mm -hmm. taught the child to say a sound for each letter, but that's not the way the system is structured. There are speech sounds that are not represented by letters and there are letters that don't <laughs> represent speech sounds in a straightforward way and their letter combinations that represent speech sounds in English. English is more problematic than a lot of other alphabetic codes and it takes longer to learn the alphabetic code of English. Uh, so, but we can teach it. We just have to plan to teach it over sufficient time in a systematic approach. It's very teachable. I mean, it's not as hard as learning Mandarin Chinese Right. Well, Memorize declare, thousands of arbitrary visual symbols. Yeah. You know, to clarify, just, though, you don't need a program if you have letters. That's what I'm trying. So, with that, oh, I think. Well, yes, yeah. you do. Okay. So, do. Okay. let me qualify that. So, okay. letters professional development uh, contains this information about the basic scientifically grounded models of what goes on in the brain as we learn to read. Uh, that we can uh, refer to over and over again to ground ourselves and as we answer problems like, how do I allocate instructional time? When do I emphasize what? What's the relationship between word recognition and language comprehension? Um, how do I uh, connect these different components and integrate them in my instruction? And all of these good questions that we're always uh, seeking answers to. What is a sight word and what does that mean for teaching? Um, all of those good things. At, if you know all that, then you need tools. I mean, I don't want teachers making it up as they go along. That's too time consuming, too difficult. I mean, as a designer of instruction, I've written a spelling program and I've written a program for adolescents who are very poor readers called Language Live. I spent a minimum of eight to 10 hours designing each lesson. Teachers can't do that. that no, why? I mean, think of any other profession. The, a professional responsibility is to know the best practices of your field and to build on those, right? So teachers are left, if they 
really get what we're what we're after trying to pick the best materials they can find and then use them so uh um right now it, it seems to me the state of the field is that the integration of the necessary components in instruction is not well done um, pretty much across the board there are a few programs um, that I would pick over others. If I were back in a classroom, I would want one of maybe three different things. Um, and those programs uh, do the best job of sort of addressing each of these critical components of language learning, uh, but in a more integrated way. So for example, let me give another example. Okay, suppose you have a good code lesson in at the first grade level. Well, you teach five minutes of phoneme awareness. You introduce a new concept uh, that may be a concept about phoneme graphing correspondences. Uh, and you lead the kids through guided practice. You give them more practice, but then you connect what you're teaching to meaningful vocabulary and the application of reading and writing with meaningful vocabulary that uses those patterns and concepts that have been taught. And that's the whole package. So you don't have a program for phoneme awareness, another program for phonics, another program for vocabulary, another program that calls itself comprehension strategies or whatever it's called or literature. It's all of a piece. That's that's what we want to have happen. And that's what I'm hoping more knowledgeable designers will do. So speaking of that, I want to I want to ask you a specific question because this is a fundamental breakdown, of course, in my own child's education as well, is not understanding the relationship between reading and writing mm. and that writing also has to be explicitly taught as well and you've got your book speech to print can you can you explain why reading and writing are really so interrelated I mean they Okay. I can't remember who did the quote, reading is breathing in and writing is breathing out. And I felt like that that was such a brilliant thing to say. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So uh, writing is analogous to reading in that you have to know the code to be able to write down the alphabetic symbols and punctuation. Uh, transcribe the words onto the page. And you also have to be able to formulate your ideas, right? And sentences and paragraphs. Um, so to spell, you have to have an even more, what we call clearly specified or, or accurate image of that word in your word form area in the brain, in your memory. And, and, you, and the brain has a specialized area for remembering words. It's not visual memory. It is orthographic memory, very specialized right here, okay? And in, in that word form area, in order to be able to spell, you have to know every letter in the word and to learn every letter in the word, you have to process language at several levels. You have to not only know the phoneme graphing correspondences, but you also have to know what we call orthographic patterns or conventions of letter use. And you also have to have a sense of the relationship between the meaning of the word and how it's spelled. So that's called morphology. Because our spelling system shows all those things. No, those, those are language systems. And sometimes you have to know the grammatical role of the word in a sentence to know how to spell it, uh, whether it's a verb or a noun or whatever. So um, you have to know more 
about language structure to be a good speller. You have to, you have to either just perceive it because you're wired up to be sensitive to language or you have to have been taught consciously um, to look at certain things and to know what the spelling represents. Most of us had to learn by being taught. Um, so it's two sides of the same coin, but spelling is more demanding. Uh, as is writing, expressive writing is more demanding than reading comprehension. It puts a heavier load on all language systems. And in addition, it puts a heavier load on what we call metacognitive functions, keeping track of where you are, keeping the goal in mind, uh, remembering what you just said and um, how it's gonna be connected to what you're going to say. Um, stepping back and putting yourself in the shoes of the person who's going to read it. Um, all of those, and then it requires a lot of persistence um, and a lot of social cognition. You know, what, what's, how are my words going to be perceived? That's a pragmatic skill. So writing is tremendously demanding of cognitive and language and motor skills if you're writing by hand. Um, so that's the connection, you know, it's all language and this is about structured language. It's all about language structure and language use, but spelling and writing are more demanding. They take more time to learn. They are learned more slowly. And um, uh, I think that we impose unreasonable demands on kids way too early in the name of standards uh, that are counterproductive. Um, and, uh, you know, your turn. So I have to ask a question just because one of, my, one of my partners is going to be remiss if I don't ask this question of you just because of the own, her own struggle that she's having with her son and her advocacy. Spelling is important, right? Being able to spell is a critical skill that must be taught, correct? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not something to be, oh, it's not important. They can mm -hmm. use addiction or they can use spell check. No, it doesn't work. <laughs> it it you, works Julie. only to what, what uh, one, my colleagues and I said in a review paper in, in 2009 is, it looks as if kids need to spell at about a fifth grade level in order to use a spell checker productively. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it's just a random picking something yeah. out of the options. Spell checkers are getting better, but still you have to, you know, have some skill in order to use them. Right. And, you know, from a parent advocacy point of view, that's a lot of the pushback that I know myself and many others do is great. You're handing my dysgraphic child assistive technology, but you've still not taught him grammar and syntax. Yeah. So he won't be successful, successful with the assistive technology tools because he still doesn't understand the core structure of how written language is supposed to work in order to be successful. You're, yeah. I mean, you're, there's no, I mean, there's just no correlation here. It's, right. you can't even call it a band-aid. Right. It's right. Just, can I go? <laughs> Sorry, a comment from Amy Riley, uh, Riley Trainer says, we love your spellography curriculum. Great. Uh, my daughter is finally learning how to encode. Oh, so do you want to tell and one more thing right before that, somebody asked, how do they contact with letters? So both of those, how do they get connected with letters? Well, letters, the acronym is L-E-T-R-S. It's an acronym. Uh, we'll put a link to. Okay, the Voyager Sopris learning uh, Voyager Sopers Learning is my publisher, and they handle all of the contracts, the everything. They have a website. It's all there. Um, and spellography, um, we need to revise it, but I'm very happy that someone's using it productively. We, my colleague Bruce Rossow and I 
developed it for poor spellers at the fourth and fifth grade level. But it requires a teacher to teach who, you know, will teach the structure of language. And it was, um, from, what, from what you've said, what it sounds to me is letters, is the training in letters is really what sets the teachers free. Yes, they still need a curriculum, but it's the thing that sets them the most free to do what we've been saying for a long time, which is let the teachers teach. Well, it empowers, it, knowledge mm -hmm. is power, right? That's straight right. phrase, but that's it. Imagine how much more secure a teacher will feel when they know where they're going, how they're gonna get there, what the aim is and why, and mm -hmm. how to interpret what the student is doing, what the student is struggling with so that they're not wasting time uh, they're, they're communicating with the student. Uh, the student is learning. I mean, it's that, that's the most thrilling thing to get a result. That's what we want. Yes. Right. Well, I have to wind up cause my, I have to do something at this next hour, but um, definitely. How should we wind we up? Well, we just, we want Good. to thank you. Dr. Motes for taking the time to come on and be with us today. The comments and the questions that have come in are rather intense. There's so many, <laughs> um, but everybody in our community was very excited about you being on with us today. And personally, I am so grateful that you were willing to take the time. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Such an honor. And you know, you all, you young looking parents who are out there fighting the good fight keep it up. That's the way we make change. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, such an honor. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Take care, All right. Take care, Dr. Moat. Thank you so much.